This episode of The Labor of Love is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code REALSIMPLE at checkout to get 10% off. Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. Though progress on women's equality has improved in education, in the workplace, and in other public realms, the same can't be said for how women, and specifically teenage girls, view their roles when it comes to sex. Girls are being taught to please boys without regard to their own sense of pleasure or enjoyment. Pop culture and social media have created pressure to look and act sexy all the time, and many girls' first encounter with sex is via internet pornography. Journalist Peggy Orenstein looks at all of these tricky and troubling developments in her new book, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Orenstein, who is the mother of a teenage girl herself, spoke with more than 70 young women between the ages of 15 and 20 from varying religions, races, and sexual orientations. She's been chronicling young women's lives for more than 20 years in best-selling books like Cinderella Ate My Daughter, and she's here with me today to talk about the current state of girls' sex lives. Peggy Orenstein, welcome to The Labor of Love. Thank you for having me. So, Peggy, I am in a place that I think you were at maybe when you started writing this book in that my daughter is nine right now, and I'm mm-hmm. just at the edge of panic about yeah. everything that's about to come up our way in terms of (laughs) social media, pornography, all the things that parents worry about. Can you talk a little bit about what, where you were at in your personal life when you started investigating and working on this book? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of a combination of personal and professional. I had finished my last book, which was Cinderella Ate My Daughter, and that was looking at how the culture of little girls had become more about telling them that how they looked was more important than who they were and looking at you know the, the princess culture, the princess industrial complex and all of that. And at the same time, my daughter was getting older and I was looking at what was coming at us and I was hearing stories from friends with older kids about the hookup culture and about binge drinking and about social media scandals and texting, sexting and you know, my, my initial impulse was to say, I don't have to, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I, I feel that parenting from ignorance and fear is usually the best strategy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so thinking again that maybe that wasn't the best idea, I uh, decided that because I've been writing about girls for all this time, it was an opportunity. And I went out and interviewed young women that were college bound or in college about their sexual experiences to try to get a handle on what was going on and bring that conversation back so that we adults could start thinking about how to do better by our girls. So I want to talk a little bit about the term empowerment. Mm-hmm. That's something that... I know. I hate that word. <laughs> yeah, I I, I've it. actually always hated that word, but it yeah. did start cropping up a lot in my women's studies classes, you know, 20 years ago. And yeah. certainly now is, is sort of... Co-opted. Yeah. And the girls you interviewed describe themselves as feeling empowered Mm-hmm. And liberated even, I think, by wearing, you know, revealing clothing and mm-hmm. looking hot. You're about to start sounding fusty, aren't you? I am, I am. Uh-huh. Um, thanks for pointing <laughs> that out to all the listeners. Uh, but at the same time that they're feeling so, you know, quote, hot, they also 
express a lot of powerlessness and anger about this constant judgment of how they look. How do you explain that? Well, it's so that's why I say it's a complicated new landscape because you know the idea of hot, which is this very narrow, very commercial, very superficial idea of sexiness that it tells girls over and over that how their bodies look to other people are more is more important than how those bodies feel to them, and that being desirable is more important than understanding their own desire, their own needs, their own wants, their own limits. And so, you know, the culture is just littered with female body parts, but we never have these conversations that would help girls develop sexuality from within. So kind of as often as not, the confidence sort of comes off with their clothes. This particular moment in time and in the culture isn't the first time or the only time it that no. women have been defined by the way they look or, or felt. No. Uh-uh. I think it's more intense, and I think that the difference is that whereas an earlier generation of women, and I think what you're sort of talking about when, you know, when I teased you about sounding fusty, is we look at that as, as something imposed on us and a, and a form of self-objectification, which we protest, that today girls are sold that message as a source and maybe the source of confidence and you know positivity and and so so I would I, one girl that I talked to for instance showed me a picture of herself in you know the little skimpy you know the little crop top little skimpy skirt and the high heels that we all know what I'm talking about and she said I never I, you know I'm proud of my body and I never feel more liberated than when I'm wearing skimpy clothing but then a few minutes later she told me that a year earlier she weighed 25 pounds more and she wouldn't have worn that clothing because she would have been afraid that particularly some boys would call her what she said the fat girl and so you know when I talk to her and when I talk to young women is that you have to question who is defining I mean of course you're proud of the right body it's fun to you know attract male attention and even female envy but Whose bo- who gets to be proud of which body and under what circumstances and how liberating can it really be if the threat of ridicule always lurks around the corner? So they're always struggling with this. You know, one girl said to me, you know, usually the opposite of a negative is a positive, but when you're talking about issues around girls and sex, it's two negatives. You're either a prude or a slut, and you're trying to find this magic sweet spot in the between balance. where you can balance. And are they trying to find that magic sweet spot if they're heterosexual, is it so they're attractive to men? Is it for their peers? Is it for themselves? I mean, what is, who are they doing it for? I'm not sure that they fully know themselves. One, you know, one girl said to, I mean, do you really know? (laughs) know, my, My one girl said to me, isn't there a difference, she used the word slutty, isn't there a difference between dressing slutty because you feel good about yourself and you don't need validation and dressing slutty because you don't feel good about yourself and you do need validation. Right. And I said, that's a fair point. You yeah. know, tell me what the difference is. And she kind of thought for a second and then she sort of drooped and said, I don't know. And I feel like I spent half my life trying to figure that out and sometimes at the expense of my own well-being. So I think it's so complicated and and it's also set up to make i mean when i was writing this book one of the things that really struck me was how often i felt on the wrong side of a generation gap right and i i wasn't accustomed to that it it shocked me every time and i thought you know this is all designed to create that to create this rift and create this distance and create this idea that rebellion and independence for young women is all about how you present all about how you perform your sexiness as opposed to how you feel about your body and your ability to articulate those feelings. So 
Let's talk a little bit about what is distinctive about this moment in time and how, you know, and one of the most obvious things that I think we can point to is pornography, is social media. And I wondered what you learned from the girls that you talked to about how they felt that their sex lives and their sense of self as sexual beings was impacted by pornography. Yeah, you know, that is one of the really huge changes for this generation, that pornography is ubiquitous, it's so easily accessible, and it's more um, increasingly extreme because, you know, they need to keep attracting those eyeballs. And girls really did feel, I mean, it was, it was a funny thing because they couldn't, in some ways, they couldn't say how it was affecting their, their sex lives because they were living it. You know, what do they know? Right. They don't have anything to compare it to. Right. But in other ways, they would talk about it. And there was a survey of um, college students in England that found that 60% said that they consulted porn in part as an instruction manual. And there's something also in the book, there was someone who said that it was also used, they needed it as a reference tool because people were asking them to do certain things. Yeah. And it they didn't know what it meant, so they would go looking at it. Exactly. They go looking at porn. And again, it's this way that, you know, if we don't tell girls or boys, I mean, this is really important, it's really important for boys, too. If we don't talk to them about what sex really is, what our expectations are, that sort of thing, the culture will educate them for us. And, and so girls would talk about, I mean, on, at the more honestly, not benign is probably the wrong word, but the less extreme anyway, and uh, um, girls would say to me all the time that, like, um, boys would ask them why, they, my boyfriend wants to know why I don't make noises during sex like the women in porn. Right. I heard that so many times. It began to really get under my skin, and I finally, you know, my journalistic remove kind of crumbled, and I just <laughs> said, look, you know, it's a movie, yeah. and movies have to have a soundtrack, otherwise <laughs> they'd be silent movies. <laughs> and so, of course, the boy, you know, it's a, this is not real, but they, it was like that was a revelation, and... And then at the more extreme end, anal sex rates have gone way up among kids. And, you know, these are girls that are in high school who have never had an orgasm on their own, who have never had an orgasm with their partner, and they're participating in anal sex. And what research shows about that was that boys were driving that change, that they were doing it not as a way to be intimate with a partner, but as a kind of competition with other boys, like the bucket list to check off that they thought their partners would have to be and could be coerced into it. And the girls reported pain, unsurprisingly, right. and both girls and boys blamed the girls for that and said that, you know, that was because they were, the language they used was like naive, flawed, unable to relax. So, you know, I mean, my, my whole thing in thinking about all of this is, I don't want girls' early experiences to be something that they have to get over. Peg, you actually have a term for this in the book, which is you say that society is giving girls a, quote, psychological clitoridectomy. Can you explain what you mean by this? Yeah, you know, from the get-go, it's almost like we think if we don't tell girls that, about their capacity for pleasure that they, that they don't find out, they won't find <laughs> out. And the truth is they don't find out, but it's not the outcome that we would like. So when we have baby boys and baby girls, we tend to name all of the boys' parts. So at least we'll say, here's your pee-pee, something like that, you know. And then with girls, we go right from navel to knees. So there's this big void, and there's no better way to make something, you know, unspeakable than not to name it. And then they go into puberty education class, and they find out that 
boys have uh, erections and ejaculations, and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancies. And then they look at the, um, you know, that internal diagram of the female reproductive organs that looks kind of like a steer head, (laughs) and then it grays out, right, between the legs. So we never say vulva, we never say clitoris. And no surprise, girls go into, fewer than half of teenage girls uh, have ever masturbated, and then they go into their partnered interactions, and we somehow expect that they're going to know that they can have a voice, that they can have agency, that they have a right to articulate their desires, that they have a right to express their limits, you know? And I really was taken by this idea of intimate justice that Sarah McLaughlin, who's a um, psychologist at University of Michigan, talks about, which is looking at this as a social justice issue, the way in some ways that, like, I don't know, who does the dishes, you mm-hmm. know, in your house isn't part of social justice issue, and saying, who gets asking questions, like, who gets to engage in a sexual experience? Who gets to enjoy it? Who's the primary beneficiary? Who, you know, how does each partner define good enough? And those are really thorny issues, and they're thorny for adult women, too. I got to say, yeah, that I want to get to that in a minute, but I got to say that one thing that was kind of surprising to me about the lack of awareness of pleasure and a lot that a lot of the girls that you spoke with um, and a lot of the experts you spoke with articulated surprised me because I would have thought that these girls would have been they're coming of age at a time when their moms presumably would have been I would have thought maybe not their dads because dads are never that open with their daughters about sex as you point out but I would have thought that their moms would have been more on top of this conversation. Did that surprise you too? It did. Some of their moms had talked to them, and, and we can talk more about this, but about risk and danger. But I don't know, these kids are also the product of the abstinence-only era. Right. So they had, most of their sex education was terrible. And If they had parents, it. <laughs> yeah. Their parents would say to them, you know, one of the girls said, my parents are really liberal and we kind of, you know, we'll joke about sex and stuff, but not when it comes, when it comes to me, they're more like a conservative family. And they'll say, if you have any questions, you know, I'm open to hearing them, you know, ask me, I'm, I'm always here for any questions. But they don't want to, that is an awkward situation for the girls to be the ones to have to initiate the conversation. It's really foisting it onto them. We think that's doing a good thing. But if we're not comfortable talking to them, if we're not comfortable getting in there and using the language, you can't expect them to be. Another thing that was interesting to me is the way that the girls that you spoke to talked about their virginity Mm -hmm. and that they kind of, they see virginity as being something very separate than oral sex and very intimate sexual acts have nothing to do with virginity. Was that surprising to you? What does the terminology mean to them at this point? Yeah, with oral sex, I mean, when you said it's an intimate act, not so much to young people today, Mm -hmm. not when it's female and male. The other way around, it's very intimate, but female and male is not considered particularly intimate. And so that is doesn't you know they'll just sort of say that's really not that big of a deal or it's you know it's a way of going a little further than kissing but it's not like sex a little further than kissing yeah again here's fusty <laughs> lori but com- really i know i said i mean i make a joke in the book that you know i don't know about them but you know i kind of consider this is maybe i'm an older generation but i consider a penis in my mouth a pretty intimate situation <laughs> 
But maybe even uh, more than intercourse. Well, that's what it used to be. Yeah. But not anymore. And in fact, it was, you know, the girls had a lot of reasons for engaging in oral sex. They would say, you know, it was a way to gain popularity without, you know, being seen as a slut. It was a way to get a boy to like you. It was a way to, you know, keep a relation, keep a guy happy in a relationship. It was sometimes just because you got tired of saying no. It certainly wasn't, you know, none of, and, and sometimes they would talk about it as a, as a power thing, you know, that moment of power that you feel when you when the guy's in your control or you know all kinds of reasons but none of them were about their body or their pleasure and at a one at one point i said to a girl well what if some guy just kept asking you to get a glass of water from the kitchen you know and he never got you a glass of water or if he did it was like <sighs> fine you know fine i'll, I'll get you the glass of water you know what if we you would never stand for that and she laughed and she said well if you put it that way you know, and I thought, well, so you're less insulted by somebody by performing a oral sex over and over than you are about getting a glass of water over, over and over. That's you know, that's a little strange. How did? Could you talk a little bit about how that how they feel about oral sex being performed on them? It seems like that's much less popular. Totally different. <laughs> yeah. Totally different. And I got and and it's you know it's part of this shame around their own genitals and this weird kind of combination of feeling it was sacred and it was icky. So it wasn't just that boys didn't want to do it. It was also that they really didn't want boys to do it. So they, or some of them, not, not all of them, obviously. And so I was always interested in the kind of reversals of the way that they talked about girls and boys. So with boys, you know, they would talk about the shoulder push where boys would put two hands on either side and kind of silently push downward. But they would talk themselves about doing what I started calling the armpit scoop, where if boys started drifting down, they would direct them away from, you know, to safer, more, you know, less erogenous ground. And, you know, and that was really interesting. And, and there is, uh, you know, we tend to know there's, there's, a, there's a large orgasm gap, obviously, between, not obviously, but there is between men and women. They, they also look at sexual satisfaction differently. And one of the things that, came, that I saw in the research was that young women, college-age women, are, are, are more likely than their male peers to measure their own satisfaction by their partner's pleasure. So to say, if he's satisfied, I'm satisfied. Okay. So how are we going to remedy this? This is like I'm getting my I'm yeah. getting all anxious and you're getting all and anxious, sweaty. You here. know, you're going to move to the Netherlands. Lori. Yes. So let's you're talk about the move Dutch. To the Netherlands. <laughs> there was research that showed that American comparing the early sexual experience of American girls and Dutch girls, and on every measure, every measure. The Dutch girls come out ahead, whether it's reduced negative consequences like pregnancy and disease or enhanced positive consequences like knowing their partner very well, having fewer partners, enjoying the experience, having a better body image, being able to articulate their needs, wants, and limits, all that stuff. Dutch just far and away better than us. But let's also give credit to the Dutch parents who, when you dig into that research, you found that... So why, why? You have to ask why. What's the difference? And one of the major differences is the way the parents talk to their children, also the teachers and doctors, but parents, Dutch, uh, American parents, and this would have included me too if I hadn't you know, thought, worked on this book, tend to talk about sex in terms of danger and risk. And Dutch parents talk about balancing responsibility and joy. And so I would have reflexively thought that if I talked to my daughter about contraception, disease protection, and consent, you know, job well done, Peggy. Right. You, you did it. And now I know 
that is really not enough, that I have to swallow my mortification that's natural to us Americans and find ways to integrate these ideas of positive sexuality and my expectations that she will have a good time and what that looks like, what respect looks like into our conversation. Let's talk a little bit about your finding, and this, again, shows the deep generation gap here, but what was really interesting to me, because it did not work this way among my peers when I was a teenager, was that we know about hookup culture, right? Mm -hmm. We know that, like, dating is a thing of the past. We know that kids text and don't talk. We know all of these things. But actual sex is what the beginning of a relationship looks like, and then it might or might not continue. Like, the intimacy isn't established until after the sex is had. How did that work for girls? Did they? Is this working for them? For some of them. I mean, mm-hmm. for some of them, you know, some girls would come in. There's one girl who came in, sat down in an interview and said, I wanted to talk to you because I wanted to stop this idea that girls are victims of the hookup culture. Some of us really like it, and this is what we want. And other girls found it, you know, unhygienic and disgusting. And you know, another girl said, all my friends call me grandma because, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not good. You know, she said some, you know, I went to a party and they said, hey, that sophomore guy really wants to hook up with you. And she's like, he wants to... I don't know what I can say in your podcast, so let's just say have sex and say that that's not the word she used. Okay. Um, have sex with me, but she, he doesn't care about what my name is. I mean, forget it. Why would I want to do that? So there was a whole range, but the common denominator was that, especially in college, but increasingly in high school, they all had to define themselves and their sexuality in relationship to the hookup culture. So they all had to think about where do I want to be you know, in relationship to that norm. And what were the options? Well, you could participate. You mm-hmm. could opt out. Um, for, for freshman girls and to a lesser extent sophomore girls in, in college, you know, some of them would say, well, if, you, you know, if you're not going to do it, you're going to be home. You're going to be called, gra- you know, grandma. You're going <laughs> to be home making microwave popcorn and calling your mom <laughs> on Saturday and probably Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. Other girls, you know, their kids were still in relationships for sure. You know, they went back and forth. But the hookup culture was seen as the norm. And I think that's what's really shifted that, I mean, they didn't invent casual sex, obviously. But the idea that uh, sex as a norm proceeds rather than rises out of intimacy that is new and that that's the expectation. So I'm in the middle of trying to start to build my own website. I've never done this before. I've always had other people working on sites for me. And I've enlisted Squarespace to help me out. I'm just at the beginning, but so far, so good. I have been able to understand every direction, and I'm actually creating something that I'm sort of proud of. I'm going to talk to you more about it in the coming weeks once I've gotten it all together. What I'm really excited about is that my site looks professionally designed, and like I said, I'm not the most technical person, and I've been able to figure it out so far. If you want to get a free domain with Squarespace for up to a year, sign up at squarespace.com, and again, enter the offer code real simple at checkout to get 10% off. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you found the differences were between the young women who identified as gay and the young women who identified as heterosexual were and what their experiences with sex looked like? Yeah, it was really fascinating that the girls who were identified as lesbian or bisexual who had same-sex experiences said that when they got off the cultural script, when they uh, and they used the word script, when they no longer were, you know, kind of 
trying to create an experience that was about this sort of male-driven idea of sex, that it freed them to create something of their own that worked for them, that, you know, that really satisfied them. And it was a really interesting observation that, that they frequently made. And, you know, no surprise, but girls in same-sex partnerships, they continue to measure their satisfaction by their partner's satisfaction, so they, they're very conscious of their partner's satisfaction, and orgasm rates are exponentially higher for girls in same-sex relationships. And the other piece was one of the things that I talked about in the book a lot was virginity and the idea of virginity as first intercourse and how, you know, that may be a big deal, but it's not the only big deal, and it's not necessarily serving girls that we keep harping on this. And I asked one of the lesbian girls who'd never had heterosexual intercourse when she knew she wasn't a virgin anymore, and she said she had actually Googled that question at one point, and Google didn't have an answer. They need to get on that. But uh, (laughs) what she found, what she eventually told me, she kind of hemmed and hawed, and she said, you know, I think I wasn't a virgin anymore when I had my first orgasm. And I thought... Yeah, I loved that. I know. (laughs) I mean, that would like... It's such a paradigm shift that you almost can't, like, you you almost can't get your mind around it. Like, what would that mean? But it's this idea of sex as one of the... uh, Dennis Fortenberry, who's an expert on adolescent sexuality, says it's the idea of sex as a pool of experiences, you know, of arousal and touch and eroticism and and sexual tension and, you know, that young people should be learning about because, you know, who is really more sexually experienced? The person who spent three hours kissing and learning about, you know, tension and sensuality or the person who gets wasted and rushes to intercourse to unload their virginity. One of the criticisms that's been lodged at the book is that you limited your interviews to mostly middle-class girls. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to hear you talk about your, why you chose to do that. You know, I really wanted to talk to girls who had opportunity and who were thought of as the beneficiaries of the feminist movement, because these girls that I talked to, I mean, if I had interviewed them about their education, about their ambitions, about their hopes and dreams, I would have been so impressed. And if these girls who were leaning in all over the place were still toppling over in their personal lives, then I felt that nobody could deny or find some excuse for the issues. It's hard not to finish your book. I mean, the last chapter helps, but it is hard not to finish the book as a mother of a nine-year-old girl and not feel maybe even more panicked than I was when I started it, but also (laughs) a little helpless. And, you know, there's some key takeaways here. Um, We've talked about some of them. I think that Basically, we all just need to get behind the Dutch model of parenting like ASAP, and that will help a lot. Can you talk about other ways forward for parents and for girls? I think that would be really helpful because this Uh stuff is really freaking scary. It is scary. It is scary. And again, you know, but turning away from it, parenting from ignorance and fear, not so good. Um, But, you know, I really I I wanted to make the point and strongly and I also wanted the book to serve as a place where, I mean, I think high school girls can read this book. I wouldn't have girls younger than that read it um, as, as a neutral ground for discussion of the issues because it, it can be hard. But, you know, none of us had those Dutch parents. So no. how are we supposed to know how to do that? I mean, some of us did. People write to me and say my parents were like the Dutch, but most of us did not have Dutch parents. And I think if you can't 
be the one to talk to your daughter. And honestly, I don't know that I can be the one to talk to my daughter because my own anxiety and, you know, and fears get in my way. And you enlist somebody else, you know, I mean, the, the, the cool aunt or the great cousin or, the, you know, your neighbor or whomever, you build the team, you know, that you need to support your daughter. I know that, you know, I've been that person. There, there was a young woman uh, when she was 16, my friend asked me to take her out and talk to her because she thought she was going to she was going to be having intercourse. And and she couldn't do it. She just, she had to outsource the job to yeah, you. Yeah, she had to, but there was nothing wrong with that. No, That's I know. Great. It's, it's so a great wanted, idea. Yeah, I totally wanted to fall through the floor. Totally wanted to fall Even through the Even though it wasn't your own daughter, you still had yes, that feeling. I don't want to say orgasm and clitoris and stuff in front of some 16-year-old who wants to do that. You know, I'm not Dutch. So <laughs> I'm like sitting there, talking, you know, but I thought, I have to. This is what I believe, you know. And so we talked about, you know, safe, the safety issues are easy, right? Anybody can do that, contraception, all that kind of stuff, you know, disease protection. But I said, look, you know, in addition, and, and they were close. I knew he was a good guy, all that. I said, look, you have to... I, I'm going to ask you some questions, and you don't have to tell me the answers, but I want you to think about them. Just, I want, you know, think about, have you masturbated? Have you had an orgasm on your own? Do you understand female arousal and lubrication? Have you had an orgasm with your partner? And if you answer no to those questions, you know, really, why are you having intercourse? Why are you thinking about rushing to intercourse? What are you hoping to get out of that experience? And although, I don't know, I, she didn't answer those questions, she thanked me for talking to her, but that was eight years ago, and I, that girl and I are so, I mean, she's not a girl anymore. She's an adult woman now. We are so close. Mm-hmm. She, called, she just called me the other day because she's having trouble with her partner, and she was really upset, and she needed to talk to somebody about what was going on. I mean, she calls me all the time. We talk all the time, and I really feel that that happened because I opened that door and said, here I am. You can talk to me about anything. I will prove it, and I will not judge you. So in about five years, you'll get this call from me, and yeah. I'll just put my daughter on the line, okay. and, and we can I'd be just... happy to. Okay. <laughs> uh, your whole readership, you know? Yeah. Me to... but, but, you know, the other thing is, is, so I have said to this young woman, who's, who's 24 now, I don't, you know, when my daughter, I, my daughter is now 12, and I said, I want, it's, you, it's time for you to step up. What yeah. I want in return for having been here for you all these years is you have to be that person for her. That's great. So... You know, and that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Peggy, where do boys fit into this whole conversation? You know, obviously, you can't talk about girls and sex without talking about boys and sex. And although the book is about girls, I really consciously ended it in a co-educational classroom where kids were working out these issues. And, and actually, the last scene is on a boy. And in one of my favorite moments in that class, there's a boy who suddenly says, and, you know, they're talking about various things. And he says, you know that baseball metaphor for sex? In baseball, there's winners and losers. Who's supposed to be the loser in sex? And I just, it was like this moment that, I mean, it's just a small moment. I mean, he's talking like, about first base, second base, third yeah, base. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's like a profound mental shift for him to think, oh, my gosh, I'm supposed to be going in this as a partner, not as an adversary trying to score off the girl. And... You know, it was that sort of moment that in the co-educational classroom that made me feel this great sense of hope and possibility and optimism that boys and girls want to work these issues out and can work these issues out together. Peggy Orenstein, thank you so much for being on The Labor of Love today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. 
As always, if you'd like to be a guest on our show or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email me at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. <laughs>